You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As critics cite the failings of the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic, public health officials and government leaders are looking at where the national supply chain failed and what can be done today to better prepare for the crises of tomorrow. Siemens USA President and CEO Barbara Humpton joined the Post to discuss her thoughts on how to modernize the defense industrial base to ensure that the national emergency response is versatile and nimble enough to meet the unexpected crises of the future. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed-Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. And this afternoon, I'm pleased to welcome Barbara Humpton. She's the US CEO and president of Siemens, the Germany-based manufacturing, industrial manufacturing giant. With more than 50,000 employees and over 23 billion in revenue, she oversees the company's largest market. Barbara, welcome to Washington Post Live. Francis, it's terrific to be with you today. Barbara, I want to start by talking about the general concept of strategic readiness. We're gonna be talking about how to improve it, but first tell me, what do we mean by that term? What does it include? Well, you know, it's it's often been the case, and we've heard this from uh, folks in defense, that we tend to fight the last war. And we're in a moment right now where we need to look ahead and be prepared for what may come next. We don't know what the next crisis may be, but rest assured, there will be one. And now's a moment when we need to think deeply about what it takes to be prepared for that crisis. We've been supporting America throughout all of the phases of COVID-19, and we're ready now to help America be ready for that future. And, you know, we've been talking to lawmakers, to leaders in defense and, and government writ large, as well as other industrial partners. And what's clear is that we're going to need critical materials as we advance and deal with the crises that are ahead of us, be they pandemics, be they fires, be they storm events, what is coming at us is constantly changing. So the key Barbara, here, yes. Sorry, I wanted to talk to you about one, two other terms that come up often in this. That's the defense industrial base and the organic industrial base. What belongs in those two concepts? Because I think we're gonna be talking about them in the next half hour too. For sure. Yes. I mean, traditionally, the defense industrial base, that um, U.S. military capability, as well as the contractors supporting our defense articles. And then we have the organic industrial base, a capability maintained by the Department of Defense. Call it two dozen factories across the U.S. that have, over the last several decades, been prepared to build military articles as needed. And what we're looking at is how could those uh, those facilities of the organic industrial base actually be used to help us in broader preparedness. Ah, I've got it. Now, we've heard a lot of criticism in the last few months of our nation's preparedness in the face of this pandemic. Um, we've heard about shortfalls in the uh, national stockpile, that's the medical equipment and resources available. And um, what can a company like Siemens do to enhance our readiness in that area? Well, we've been working with manufacturers across the United States, and one thing that we see very clearly is that there are tools that have been invented just in the last couple of decades that are transformative in manufacturing. So what the iPhone did for our communication, our entertainment, um, now those same digital tools come to us in the world of manufacturing. So. 
think about this, that stockpile, what do we need to have in it? We, given that we can't predict what's coming, we couldn't possibly have physical articles to handle any inevitability. What if instead we kept a library of digital files, the digital blueprints, if you will, of critical components that we may need, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, or just preparedness, response, personal protective equipment. With digital files, the, what I like to think of as a strategic digital twin reserve, we could then activate manufacturing capability across the US, increasing the speed to need for regional supply chains in regions all across the country. So tell me, define exactly what Siemens' relationship is with the US. You clearly have a stake to play, a, a large stake in here. So um, define that and tell me who the other stakeholders are. Sure, yeah, Siemens, you think of us as an infrastructure company. We have deep expertise in electrification, automation, digitalization. So what we're doing is working side by side with customers who are keeping the lights on in our electrical infrastructure, uh, people in, in the medical world, uh, our capabilities with our colleagues in Siemens Health and Ears, bringing critical medical devices. In, in the area of buildings, we're actually helping to build medical facilities and ensure they have adequate power. And in the area of manufacturing, we're helping manufacturers scale up. So in all of those areas, you can think of Siemens as the digital partner and as well as an equipment provider and a service provider as well. So what is the process through which these improvements or these relationships with the government happen? Legislative? Who are the other stakeholders? How does this work? Well, we've been talking to legislators for sure. We've been talking to key stakeholders at the Department of Defense. Obviously, we believe that the Department of Homeland Security has a critical role to play. What we're envisioning is the idea of establishing this strategic digital twin reserve, asking manufacturers to, uh, to actually build out digital twins of their products digital twins of the production process that's used to produce their products and have those on hand so that in case of need, we could draw on those as a nation, activate those manufacturers and bring their capabilities to the market. So you're seeing a lesson in our pandemic response that's truly related to long-term strategic planning. It is indeed. I mean, it takes it certainly takes long term planning in order to envision what are those critical items we'll need. But, you know, remember, the real key concern here is that we can't possibly stockpile everything they need. There's no business case for that. And and I don't know that there is enough taxpayer dollars to to build warehouses full of things that we may eventually use. Heaven's sake, those things could go out of uh, out of use uh, with over a period of time. They could be obsolete. So what this would enable us to do is to maintain the flexibility we need to then ramp up for scale when needed. So I've been reading a little about these 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 tw these digital twins. Give me an example as well of how they could work in a private company. What twinning could do to avoid, for example, um, log jams in uh, a production cycle. Yeah, digital twins have been used over many years by some really diverse applications. 
um, many people will remember the Mars rover Curiosity. Uh, of course, it would be impossible for NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab to recreate the conditions of Mars. So what they did was created a digital twin of the rover itself and a digital twin of the environment it would be in which it would be used. And simulating, for instance, the landing of Curiosity thousands of times, they found the optimal um, parameters to ensure a safe landing on the planet. That same technology can be used now within companies as diverse as aerospace and defense and cosmetics. And in fact, they're simple enough to use in some cases that a high school student can download the software onto her laptop as Ashley Kimball did in Huntsville, Alabama, and create a digital twin of a prosthetic foot for a former Marine who had lost his leg in combat. I'm thinking that where we're headed is an environment where it's going to take the, the core skills of, in essence, video gaming to be able to interface with these incredibly capable engineering tools and then enable us to create digital twins, lay out production lines, and, and really be able to virtually recreate both the product, its production, and its performance in the real world before we ever have to bend metal or inject plastic. So back up a little, you're talking to me about video gaming as a child's preparation for the next generation of jobs, is that right? <laughs> I think I just said that, yes. <laughs> um, I have a question from a listener. This is Heather Bartholomew, who's written in. Um, yes. She's from Washington, and I'm going to read her question. What should the federal government be doing to assist in create creating greater strategic resilience? Of course, we have a lot of leaders in government right now and at all levels, right? Both federal, then state and local level. And we've seen great engagement with the private sector, with the governments at all levels. And this is a moment when government can begin to take stock of the breadth of the risks we're facing. If in the past we've been thinking about the Department of Defense focusing on military threats, well, I think the last three months have shown us it's time to consider other threats to our national security as well and to think broadly. Now, I know the Department of Defense is already thinking about these things, as is the House Armed Services Committee, for instance. So we're seeing really good um, engagement on the subject of broadening our perspective, looking for ways to um, bring existing skills and existing capabilities from industry to help solve these problems and, and, and strengthen our readiness for these future threats. So the pandemic took some of us by surprise, others not. I know there are people who've been warning about it for a long time. Climate change, another looming crisis. Um, how can these tools that you're talking about help us prepare? We're already engaged, of course, in, in changes in our, our weather systems, but how can um, these changes you're talking about help us prepare to tackle that sort of looming crisis. And I know Siemens itself has had some sort of um, has had a controversial role in or been criticized for some of its engagement with coal plants. But talk generally about 
<laughs> yeah, Siemens has had a long engagement in the energy sector and you know, literally for decades. And what you'll find is that in large scale power generation, um, assets that get built truly perform for decades. And so, yes, indeed, Siemens has been involved in fossil power and is now increasingly involved in the transition to renewable forms of energy. And maybe even more importantly, what I'm talking about here, the digital twin, the digital controls that make it possible for us to blend forms of power generation on our grids. A great example is the work done by our team in the U.S. with Blue Lake Rancheria. Their tribal lands in Northern California, where the local community said that they would like to have more control over their own power generation and their connections to the grid. Uh, working together uh, with uh, PEG, we had actually uh, put in a microgrid, an islanded electrical grid. And, and place the controls in the hands of the community so they could have their own on-site renewable power generation and then connect to the grid when needed. What that gave them the capability to do then was last year during the fire, uh, during the uh, wildfires, they were able to island themselves and they actually became a power hub while the rest of the grid had to be brought down in rolling blackouts. Now, this year, as COVID hit, the controllers that are part of this microgrid solution were so sophisticated that they detected the drop in usage and were able to make the necessary adjustments so that it did no damage to the existing power generation capability. So these controls play a, a vital part as, as communities, as nations around the world really execute on their energy transition. And at Siemens, under the new Siemens Energy Company, we've brought together all of the assets in power generation, transmission and distribution. All of those are available to help um, game changers uh, work their way through that evolution. So after 9-11, there was a special commission um, which made recommendations, many of which, the vast majority of which, were adopted to help us prepare for the next uh, event or, or avoid it potentially. Do we do enough research during disasters that can inform the decisions we make about the next one? Should there be a commission now about the pandemic looking ahead so that we can inform where to invest? Well, I do believe we have many groups taking a deep look at what is needed. And what I'm really thrilled about is the fact that we are getting good partnership between Capitol Hill and the Department of Defense, particularly when it comes to looking at this in-house capability that we already have and using it in a different way. You know, when you think about this tendency we have to fight the last war, what we find is we continue to add on um, capabilities that will ensure that that will never happen again. And what's required here is a different kind of thinking about what are the potential threats we face ahead. And these are things we can't possibly predict. The numbers just won't allow us to predict the, you know, what's been uh, dubbed the black swan event. 
So, so what do you do in order to be prepared for that? Well, this is where our flexibility comes in. And, and this is why I have been so focused on, on our organic industrial base, because not only can manufacturers be engaged in the work at hand, but so could the Department of Defense by upgrading its manufacturing facilities to be more flexible, to allow for rapid reconfiguration in the case of needing to scale up for something new and different. So given this forward-looking approach and a need for flexibility, give us a couple more specific examples of, wh of where we should be enhancing the organic industrial base. Mm -hmm. Well, let's think about a couple of things that today are not with, or over the last five years have not been in the scope of the military. Um, medical device production, hmm, or pharmaceutical production. Well, we've seen how Operation Warp Speed has now been stood up. Uh, wouldn't it be fantastic if we had the ability to, to design and prepare some manufacturing lines for pharmaceuticals? Do that now. We can model it now. We can have all of the specifications ready so that when we have actually identified a successful vaccine, we'd be able to turn on whichever of those designs is appropriate for the vaccine we're choosing to scale up and distribute. That's the kind of thing that can be done. But it's not just uh, thinking about a pandemic. Um, as, as we think about the other threats to, the, to our national security, another one that comes up all the time is cyber. And, and what do we do about the need for domestic production, for instance, of semiconductors? Well, that's a vitally important topic. And here is where the know-how of, of uh, individuals in the semiconductor industry working closely with the Department of Defense can actually prepare us, can actually help us build up that domestic capability. And, and so for these kinds of things, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, um, microelectronics, we think those are key areas where early steps are warranted. Again, be a little bit more specific, if you, if you can, about taking this from the um, from the modeling level to the actual distribution, which is a huge issue now with the vaccines, or the potential of a new vaccine. How do we get it actually to people? We go then into supply chains and lines and uh, way beyond the, uh, the model. That's right. And, and so think about how our lives have morphed even over the last three or four months. Who ever knew how reliant we would be on the grocery store employees, on the delivery people who bring necessary items to our door? Logistics has taken a giant leap forward. And by the way, logistics is using digital tools as well. Uh, if we work with any of our colleagues in that end of the business, what we're finding is um, you know, a, a transformation over the last decade. Let's take advantage of what we've learned there. Let's put that together with digital tools in the manufacturing environment. And suddenly we can take cycle time out of the solution development. So we've learned in recent days about a renewed worry about PPE and, and other physical uh, needs. And, you know, who knew what PPE was a, a few months ago? That's a clear change in our understanding. Is there a way now to, that we should be addressing these shortages quickly or, should, or, or do we just have to look ahead to the next disaster? It, oh, no. In fact, so this is the way Siemens engaged over these last few months. You know, I think like all companies, our first question was, um, are, 
are, do we have our own house safe and in order? And as soon as we had, as soon as we had confidence that we understood how to keep our employees safe and how to ensure the continuity of our business, the very next thing we looked at was what do we have to bring to the community uh, to support this fight that's going on against the COVID-19? And, and what we discovered is so many things, you know, uh, healthcare capabilities that we have in-house and then new capabilities. Our scientists went to work on new test, testing protocols, both for the virus and for antibodies. Um, turning then into the world of building hospitals, our, our team rallied to the support of local governments who wanted to be able to stand up new facilities at warp speed, just amazing performance to, to support the communities who had to deal with this hyper-local issue. Well, at the same time, in, when it came to PPE, we were able to reach out into the manufacturing community with our experts in manufacturing who, bringing some of these tools to bear, were able to ramp up production. You know, when you can help a manufacturer figure out how to use their existing space configure differently, move more product through more rapidly, then suddenly we see game-changing production overnight. So that's, we, we can continue. The, 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 greatest, um, the greatest need here is that clear link from need to point of supply. With the demand generation that's going on now, manufacturers get the signal, what's needed to produce, and folks like us come in with tools and, and support to ramp up production. Now, it's funny because the other thing we discovered during this was this could happen either on the grand scale or on the micro local scale. I'll give you an example. The um, at Georgia Tech has long been a partner for us and our colleagues in Atlanta received a phone call from Georgia Tech saying, hey, we've got a design for face shields. We have a 3D printing process that will manufacture face shields, but we really need to ramp up. And that uh, a local team in Atlanta helped that Georgia Tech get going. And before long, they were producing 10,000 face shields a week. And now they're producing 100,000 a week. Uh, there were Siemens employees in their own basements at home with their own 3D printers then turning and using that same design to help supply their local communities. It's that kind of ingenuity, that kind of initiative that I think is a game changer and it starts now. Let me ask another listener question. This is from Luke Beckman in California. Luke asked, and I'll read his question, what frameworks do you use for readiness? What strategies do you find effective to get others to take readiness steps? Yeah, that's a great question, Luke. Um, you know, it's funny because I think all of us have come into COVID, you know, at first I, I saw a real range of response. Um, those who wanted to just hunker down and say, I'm gonna wait until this is over. Others who said, hmm, you know, I, I really recognize that I've got to find to, a way to work with COVID and they got active very early. And then there are those game changers who start to think about, ooh, what does this mean about what can happen next? I'll tell you, a concept I like to share is one of being anti-fragile. Um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, if you ever follow his work, he introduced this term, anti-fragile, to be the opposite of fragility. 
the idea that we can get stronger from disruption. As I've been sharing this concept with people that this disruption we're going through is actually an opportunity to find ways to make ourselves stronger. What I find is it causes organizations to think differently. Instead of acting out of fear, we can act out of the idea that we're building muscle for the future, we're taking control of those things we can control. And so I think being able to voice a sense of optimism, a sense of mission that can bring people forward with their capabilities, their engagement, rather than working from a position of fear, I, I think that's the way we need to go. So a quick question. World War II gave us the jeep, duct tape, and the atomic bomb, I guess. Moments of disruption famously give us innovations. What's the one big innovation you think could come from this crisis that will last with us forever and become part of our lives, like duct tape? <laughs> Actually, Francis, this is it. This is it. We're experiencing it right now. Think about the way we work the digital tools that have transformed so much of the way we do things today are now reaching in new and unexpected ways and, and helping us accomplish things we could never do before. Now, in the past, we felt that we had to be uh, co-located, present, teams had to be working within the same small war room in order to accomplish great things. The digital tools of today give us the ability to reach experts no matter where they are in the world. I like to say to people, if you had power and communication and could work from anywhere in the world, where would you choose to work from? And Francis, I know for you right now, that's a cabin in Maine. <laughs> well, you were previously CEO of, of Siemens Government Technologies. Looking at the government, is, is, it, is this US government falling behind compared to other modern democracies? What should we do to keep up? Our democracy is strong, but what we have to do is take responsibility for the things that we're facing as a society. This goes beyond COVID. From COVID, we have an economic crisis that we're dealing with. And at the same time, we have a societal crisis that we're dealing with. And, and you can see linkages between all three. Now is a moment for all of us as citizens to engage, but not to engage in divisive ways, not to engage in, in, uh, in, in attempts to call each other out and, and, and prove that others are doing it the wrong way. Right now is a moment when we have to rally around the concept of a common objective, a common goal, and to go there with purpose. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your personal philosophy, which you brought up as we've talked. You're a woman uh, who's worked in a very male-dominated field of engineering. You've held senior positions in other companies like Lockheed Martin. What has it meant for you to be a woman in these male-dominated atmospheres, and how have you managed that in your personal and professional life? Well, <laughs> thanks for asking, Francis. You know, it, I have loved what I've had the privilege of doing throughout my career. In my early days at IBM and at Lockheed Martin, in, in serving the U.S. federal government, we were working on game-changing technology that, uh, frankly, did things like bring an end to the Cold War. And, and think about the global positioning system, something we take for granted today. Uh, IBM helped build the ground control segment for that, and I, I got a chance to work on it. I got to help the FBI and their biometric systems and, and help the uh, Customs and Border Protection with um, screening technologies to help protect our borders. 
I've always been passionate about solving big problems, problems that can't be solved by individuals. They, they need to be solved by teams and particularly teams with very deep expertise in, in interesting areas of knowledge. That's what makes me tick. And, and the fact that I've found myself in areas where, yes, a lot of men are drawn to this um, as well. It's actually, I think, has, has been, for me, maybe it's been uh, an edge, right? The idea that I am a little unusual. I'm a breath of fresh air. I'm, I'm somebody who looks different. Um, what I'm learning now is that it, it, differences really matter. And it's, it's just become more and more obvious in these last few years that differences provide us the richness in the solutions that we're trying to achieve. And we now see tons of data that says diverse teams produce better business results. So I, every now and then I get challenged about, hey, you know, Barb, we don't think you're the right material for this next thing. And what I like to say is, I really think I have a lot to bring to the table. I, I want to be a part of this. And, uh, and here's how I'm committed to helping you be successful. Your Twitter bio says you're passionate about diversity. You've just mentioned that. Can a big company like Siemens be agile and responsive to the needs for change we're seeing today in the wake of George Floyd's death? Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. And, and I'll tell you why I'm so certain. When COVID hit, we had to respond in days, in weeks. We, we transformed our operations. Um, we actually had a global meeting in which we, we talked about um, no longer having a global weekly crisis management team because we'd gotten control of the things that are in our control. And we, were, we could now use our normal modes of operation. Uh, my closing comment for my briefing that day was to say, we could tackle diversity, equity, and inclusion in exactly the same way, with the same spirit, with that same commitment that this is essential to our business. And I know that we can accomplish what we need to. So we've been working uh, closely in collaboration across our Siemens US uh, employee uh, base, uh, talking about changes that we can make immediately, changes that we know are going to be more long-term, and one of the biggest questions we wrestle with is measurement. What do you measure? Is it fair to measure? And right now we're, uh, we're convinced that looking at data is gonna be the key to changing our reality. I have one very short question that I'd like to finish with. Unfortunately, time has gone too quickly, but do you have any advice for women who want to enter the highest rungs of corporate America? Yes, raise your hand, raise your hand and let it be known you're interested and share the skills you have. Be confident that just being who you are is enough. Thank you very much, Barbara Hampton. It was wonderful to meet you and to talk to you about the challenges ahead and strategic readiness in our country. Um, thank you to our viewers on Washington Post Live. Please tune in to WashingtonPostLive.com for, uh, for information about future events. We've got some great ones coming up. Tomorrow, designer is Aurora James. We'll be speaking on race in America. And the following day, Friday, we'll have on New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Many thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.